Welcome to Rock Album Analysts, your weekly podcast where three lifelong friends, rock musicians, and rock fans take a deep dive into a different rock album each week. This is your host, David Lucarelli. This is John Carson. This is Mike Gavigan. This is Dave O'Leary. And today we're going to be taking a deep look at Kiss Psycho Circus, the so-called reunion album that sort of was and sort of wasn't. But before we do that, we have to look at what was going on leading up to that. So KISS has a mega successful reunion tour and it goes on for two years. It's successful in the States, it's successful internationally. And for the first time since the peak of their popularity in the mid to late 70s, KISS is once again, albeit briefly, a real cultural phenomenon. Um, I remember specifically uh, here in Hollywood, there are sort of pop-up stores that, that happen like when you're driving down the freeway and stuff, and they will sometimes be selling whatever the latest fad or trend is. It might be spinners or you know, <laughs> flowers if it's around Valentine's Day. And there were, there were pop-ups that were selling KISS action figures. I mean, that's how much of a phenomenon this was, right? It really, really um, spoke to the general public for the first time since the 70s. Like a lot of people didn't even realize KISS was still around, but a lot of those people went to see the show. And, you know, one of my observations about Kiss is that they're kind of like a really big cult band that every once in a while is able to poke themselves into the mainstream. And the first time they did it was about 1976 to 1978. That was about the longest time they've ever been able to do it. So, you know, they also did it very briefly in Australia, in Japan, in South America. Each one of those times, it was very brief. It was one tour. It was one year. And apparently what happens is the general public discovers or rediscovers this band and they go, oh, okay, right. I remember the guys with the makeup and the costumes and the songs. Like, I'd like to see that for myself. And then they go to the show and they see it and they go, yeah, that was cool. I had a good time. And, and then they're done with it. Right. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. if Kiss was doing a residency around the corner from where I lived, I would figure out a way to go see them every single night for as long as the residency went. And I would be endlessly fascinated every moment that I was there. But for the general public, they hear about Kiss and they see a show or two and then they're done. Right. And so I think that's kind of the position that KISS was in. They were coming off this mega successful tour. And the next logical step was, we need to do a new studio album with the original members to keep this thing going. Um, so they get together with producer Bruce Fairburn, who has an unbelievable track record of working with bands, right? He did. Bon Jovi, Slippery When Wet. He did uh, Aerosmith, Pump. Um, 
some fantastic sounding rock albums. Even the albums that he did that weren't necessarily mega sellers mm -hmm. sounded great. Black and Blue Without Love is a great sounding album. He did have Bob Rock working with him as an assistant there. So I'm sure that didn't hurt. But on paper, I could see why Bruce Fairburn seemed like the guy to make this a fantastic album. Um, unfortunately for them, I think he was not that healthy by the time that they were working on this album. And he actually passed away um, not that long after this album came out. So Kiss goes into the studio with Bruce Fairborn, January to April, 1998, A&M Studios, Hollywood, California, one-on-one -on -one studios, New York, New York. Um, ostensibly, this is going to be the reunion album. And what ends up happening is Ace and Peter end up playing on very few tracks. Ace plays lead guitar on two songs, sings on a couple songs, Peter sings on a couple songs, but that's about it. Mostly it is Kevin Valentine on drums and it is Tommy Thayer and to some extent Bruce Kulik mm -hmm. playing the lead guitars. I think Paul plays one lead as well. Um, so how that happened and why that happened, I guess we should talk about before we dive in song by song. Mm -hmm. um, Depending on who you listen to and, and, and why this happened, I have my own theories about why this went down, having talked to Kevin. Um, but uh, Dave O'Leary, what do you know about it? Well, you know, there, there was during the actual, you know, the reunion tour, everything wasn't as rosy as people would have thought, right? You know, Ace was starting to fall back into some of his old habits. At least that was a, the reported perception about him at the time. Uh, I do know some people that were in that camp that would have to go chase him down uh, to get him where he needed to be. And as you know, Gene and Paul are pretty much control freaks of, of all things KISS. Um, they want things run in a particular way. And I think they had it in their mind or they convinced themselves that Ace and Peter would be different than they were on their, their first go around. Right. And I don't think that act was the case. So I think, on both sides, I think there were expectations from both both those pairs about the other pair. And I don't think um, they were, in hindsight, realistic. Mm. And I think uh, that played, certainly, uh, the personalities played a role in it. I think um, Gene and Paul, from my understanding, where Gene and you know, Paul were concerned about the quality of Ace's material. Bruce Fairburn was, was concerned about his ability. Does he still have his chops? Can he play in a studio? I Can Peter do the same thing? Because we know Peter was using triggers and, and some other things um, to enhance his performance and get, get him where he needed to be. So I know there was some of that. Then there was also the discussion about attorneys got involved um, on renegotiating. And you know I'm sure they were asking for more points, et cetera, et cetera. Um, don't know how true and accurate that was, but I've heard all those things as well. But within the camp, over the years, I did hear um, that, you know, both Ace and Peter were not getting along with the other two guys as the public, they, they would like, would have liked the public to believe where it was occurring. Yeah, I, um, I think all that is true, but Gene and Paul's initial explanation that the reason why uh, Ace and Peter didn't end up playing on the album that much 
I kind of take with a grain of salt too. I mean, I am sure that they would have had to put in a lot more work to get decent performances out of Ace and Peter than they did with the people that they went with, but they were recording analog and transferring everything digital. So, you know, if Peter could hold a beat for four measures, they could have hired somebody to copy and paste it and cobble it together and make it work yep. within, within Pro Tools, right? Yes. I mean, they yep. could have had Ace do a dozen takes of every solo and hired somebody to comp it together and it would have come out decent. It would have, you know, I mean, there are ways to do it. Um, now, I know in the early days of the original lineup, they essentially split the money four ways, more or less. I mean, not counting songwriting royalties and things like that. And at this point, Ace and Peter were now in the position of being hired hands. And whether or not you agree with that, whether or not you think they should have made a fresh start, I mean, there are arguments on both sides. Ace and Peter were also getting paid for doing nothing and getting a percentage of the earnings of the band when they left the band, while Gene and Paul were still out there working their asses off to keep Kiss alive. So, you know, there's multiple sides to that story. But I do think what probably happened is Ace and Peter knew that the studio time was booked and they figured we've got Gene and Paul between a rock and a hard place because they have to pay for the studio time. Now is the time for us to say, let's renegotiate. We want more money. And Ace and, and Peter didn't think that Gene and Paul would call their bluff mm -hmm. and say, okay, if you guys don't like the contract, we won't use you we'll hire somebody else to come in. It's up to you. Um, you know, I've also heard Peter say things like, oh, they were going to pay us $850,000 not to play on the album and all this kind of stuff. I don't know. You know, <laughs> uh, Mike, John, what have you heard about this? The only thing I had heard about it was that uh, uh, Peter and Ace were brought in as hired hands and Whenever I, I was, um, yeah, my dad and I were watching a documentary on the band, you know, the actual whatever called, uh, I forget what it is. And I was trying to explain mm -hmm. to my dad how publishing rights work and how musicians are added in. And you know what I mean? If, if they're uh, contracted in or if they're, you know, actual members of the band and that kind of stuff. And the example I used was Kiss, you know, that, that, so that's really all I had heard that they were brought in as hired hands and not as um, contributing members or, you know, full, full percentage members, you know what I mean? And so that, that always struck me as kind of jive, but I also sort of understand um, why, you know, because uh, there would be no kiss to reform to if uh, Gene and Paul hadn't been chugging along, you know, all through the eighties. Mike, your thoughts? The only things that I heard were after the fact. And I, I remember being really excited that there was going to be a new album by the original lineup of Kiss. And when I listened to it, I thought certain parts of it sound like it could be Ace, but is it Ace or not? You know, there's certain songs that don't sound like Ace at all. And The drums don't sound like Peter Chris at all, except in the one moment where you know for sure Peter Chris is playing. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, I, th you know, I just think that it, overall it was it's sort of a hodgepodge of different eras of kiss and you know what i read later and, and learned about who was playing what you know i you know I, it wasn't you know what it should have been because i really thought on the reunion tour they really seemed like a band that were gelling and they yeah. were connecting and, and you know i mean 
were talking about, you know, the media presence. I remember they were on, uh, I think it was the American Music Awards where they appeared with Tupac, right? Yeah. You know, you look at Kiss on, you know, on that appearance and then you see like they flash like, you know, the Eagles. They were in the audience just watching the show. The Eagles look like the Eagles in 1994, you know, but Kiss looks like Kiss in 1977. They really transcended that many years and they look so great and they look timeless, you know, and they were, they were working and they, they, that, I'm sorry, that reunion tour was great. That should have translated into something else uh, in terms of, of the, of the new, you know, uh, the, the new album by, you know, the original members. And I don't, I, don't, I think it, they kind of took the approach and it really didn't uh, connect as much as it should have, you know, and I don't know if it was a matter of, you know, you hear all these stories about Ace's material wasn't so good. Even like the track in the void apparently was had a different song title before. And I don't know. I, and then they try to, you know, play in the thing with like tie in like, you know, the theme about the band getting back together with some of the lyrics and some of the songs, you know, and was that really the right thing to do? Or should it just been like, okay, we're Kiss and this, we're going to write a new Kiss record and just do you know, rock and roll over, you know, part two. Maybe they should have done that, you know, but I don't know. I, the things I heard were about, you know, who played on what were after the fact. And I was always trying to do homework and figure out who, who played on what track. And, you know, it, it just, it seemed like it wasn't the album that I, that I really wanted as a fan uh, to see the original lineup in report. Yeah. And we should say too, I mean, Kevin Valentine is a friend of ours and uh, I mean, his playing on the album is great, Yeah, but, and I, I've, I've heard him, interviewed and and people have asked him well did they tell you to play like peter and he says no they absolutely never said that to me and i'm sure that that is true as far as it goes but mm -hmm. kevin is such a consummate professional that he probably never had to be told mm -hmm. i mean he would have understood the parameters of the gig that he was taking and he would have known that he had to play parts that were at least conceivably within the realm of something that Peter Chris could have played theoretically. Mm -hmm. Right. And had Kevin had the freedom to simply play the parts as he saw fit, the best that he was potentially capable of, I think this could have been a much stronger album. It, it, a follow point to that as well. I mean, here's Kevin, right? I remember him telling us stories about, I think there was a time where Peter was actually in the studio at the time and Kevin was doing tracks and, you know, Kevin was, I think we asked Kevin, you know, how was that? And he's like, it was fine. You know, Peter's just there, like, you know, do what you got to do. And, but at the same time too, um, Kevin was also in a band uh, by the name of Breathless Soap and for Kiss on the uh, Dynasty Tour. So he obviously had, you know, clear perspective of, of what Peter could do and, or couldn't do. And he was yeah. in a key position to be able to fill in as needed. The other aspect of this album too, and we'll, we'll go into the songs in a second, mm -hmm. but I just, the overall production on this album, I know some people like it. To me, it feels very flat. It feels very like just kind of in your face and, and very bland. Like I, there's not a lot of depth to mm -hmm. any of these songs, especially when you compare the, the production to like, Aerosmith or Bon Jovi, where there's all kinds of interesting things going on in the sounds and the arrangement and the production. And somehow, like I said, they didn't get that Bruce Fairborn. And I'll, I'll chime in on that too, because one of my favorite Aerosmith records, you know, there's like the old Aerosmith and the new Aerosmith. One of my favorite new Aerosmith records was Pump. It was well-produced. There's a lot of depth. The guitars are crunching. They're coming 
they're coming through, man. There's a lot of depth in that in, in that production. Like to me, that was like Bruce's you know shining moment in terms of production. And we should have got that with this record. It, you know, it's a weird record, Psycho Circus, because sometimes I listen to it, I think I'm listening to it like where I've got like a blanket over the speakers. Like I'm not really hearing the things. And if, unless I really crank it up, do I start to hear the guitars? Do they start to shine through? You know, and I shouldn't have to do that as a listener. Like on volume four, I should hear all the things I need to hear. And I don't, you know, I don't hear them unless you, you blast you know, the, the CD in a way. You know, the, the production is definitely questionable. And I think there was a conversation uh, that, you know, that Paul had with Bruce at the time. And I guess they were sort of, you know, fighting about, you know, what to do in terms of the production. I think um, Paul might've said to Bruce Fairburn, um, you know, this is your first Kiss record, not mine, you know? So, uh, yes, I remember right? that. <laughs> Which is a, a great point to make, you know, but uh, obviously there was tension. There was an issue there. And, you know, I, I think clearly maybe, you know, with later albums that Kiss did, Paul's capable of producing, you know, Kiss better than sometimes outside producers are, right? Yeah, yeah. I, th I mean, I think that he could use an outside pair of ears, mm -hmm. but I understand from his perspective, he has been burned multiple times by, you know, lots of producers that uh, should have been able to do better by him than they did. Yeah, and this is big money record. I mean, they did, they did the reunion tour. This should have been like the be all end all of you know reunion albums. And um, this is we'll get into the details of it as we as we discuss. You know. Yeah. So with that said, first track, Psycho Circus, John. Uh, it's a it's a great song. I got no complaints about it. I mean, I like the uh, the vocal part. Not you know, it's um, not since ELP's Carnival Nine you know, have I been welcome to another show that I really wanted to go to like that. Um, it's got a great, um, I love that, that uh, line about the amplifiers start to hum. Um, you know, the carnival's just begun. That's a great lyric. I find the opening introduction kind of stupid. Like I would think that they, you know, they had that sort of like fake off kilter carnival noise. And then the sort of like big gong sound. Wish they had spent more time on that for some reason, made it a little more interesting. Um, but other than that, it's it's one it's it's up there as one of my favorite. Uh, it's you know it's in the pantheon of favorite Kiss songs. Actually, I mean I don't know what what your guys' opinions are about it. Is I I actually very much like this album. Dave. Yeah, you know I, I could see where they were trying to go here. I, I agree with John. You know I really like the song. But I, you know, it's again, it's, it's kind of ironic. You know, we've talked about this recurring theme the last couple of weeks with producers. And, you know, Bob Ezrin was a choice early on, correct? And at least Paul said Bob Ezrin was in his head um, when he was trying to approach the writing of that album, at least the production of that, that album. I think this is the closest they probably tried to come in some way. When you think about the opening of the record, right? Going back to Destroyer, you had what? You had the, 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 the radio interview that was going on, the news broadcast, the car sounds, you know, that whole kind of build up into Detroit Rock City. You, you, you got a little bit of that here. You, know, you can kind of see a nod from, from, you know, from Psycho Circus, that introduction, that build into what you saw in, in uh, Bob Ezrin's Destroyer. Um, I, you know, I, do like, I, I do like the way the, the song is actually constructed, put together. Again, it reminds me a lot of something that Bob Ezrin would have probably done a really good job with, you know, the way that was all orchestrated, the guitar parts, the way they interplayed together, uh, the soft arpeggios that were kind of going on in there in places, you know, the build of dynamics. There was, you know, it is, it's one of my favorite Kiss songs for sure. And I think, 
I, I, it just makes me, when I heard it the first time, I thought, man, Bob Bezman would have done a great job on this record. Yeah. Well, it's funny that you mentioned that because I do think in some ways they were looking to Destroyer as kind of a rough template for what this album should be. And this song is sort of the equivalent to Detroit Rock City. That's about going to a Kiss show. This is about being at the Kiss show, right? Um, and Bob was around kind of during the making of this album. Um, there's a story that Paul's uh, uh, tells where when they got a rough mix of this song, um, Bob came into the studio and they went out and you know put it on a cassette and cranked it up in his car stereo outside the studio to see what uh, Bob's uh, opinion was. And Paul said, you know, we were really trying to go for uh, you know, the modern day version of a Detroit Rock City here. And Bob Ezrin listened to it with him and he said, I think you got it. Yeah, because, you know, they had the harmonized guitar part, you, yeah. know, you know, the whole thing, you know, in the solo. Um, yeah, I, I, I could definitely hear that. I definitely heard it the first time I, you know, first go around when I first put that CD on. Um, but, um, yeah, I'm with, again, I'm with John. I, I think it's a great song. It's one of my favorite Kiss songs. Mike? It, it, it's a great Kiss song. I think it's a great benchmark in terms of the opening of the record. Um, whether or not that follows through with the rest of the record, you know, we'll talk about. Um, but in terms of the intro, I, I'm a big fan of Three Dog Night, and I always thought that uh, Three Dog Night did a better version of uh, having this type of intro in a song called uh, The Show Must Go On. Mm. You know, where they incorporated more of like, you know, the the circus kind of theme music with like, you know, full band and big bass drum and horns and, you know, it's almost like they just hurried up and did like this intro and try to make it circus like, and that was it. But if you listen to the three dog night song, that's, that's a better way to, to do it. It's almost like lets it breathe in a way that this doesn't, it was like a big hurry to get to the song, which is, you know, sort of a, I guess, you know, they were just trying to, you know, be efficient with what they're doing. Uh, but in terms of like this being, you know, the lead off track for the record, I was excited. I thought, okay, here we go. This is gonna be a great kiss record. I'm into this. And it, they, they drew me in, they got me. Um, personally, um, and for all the reasons mentioned, it definitely got all the elements of like a destroyer opening track. You got the, you know, the harmonized guitar, which is cool. And Paul's vocals are great. And the intros and the breakdowns are great. Um, but I think personally, the song works better on the studio version than they did live. Like it should have been, a, you know, a better, it didn't really come across live in the way that it should have, I think, you know. It plots. Yeah, it's kind of, it was kind of. Yeah, it, it lacked the energy that was on, you know, the recording, so to speak, when they presented it live. But, you know, it was an opening track when they when they toured and, you know, they did what they did. But, you know, I don't know. There was, there was definitely a difference between the studio track and, and the live performance. But, yeah, again, Kevin's drums are, are killer. And, um, you know, they, they did the harmonized guitar stuff. It's great. You know, it's a great opening track either way. Yeah. Now we should mention too, there's apparently a couple of other songs that were written for this record that are floating around out there called Psycho Circus. Uh, one was Peter's. The other one I think was one that Ace might've written with Sebastian Bach. Um, to my knowledge, those have not actually been released, but mm -hmm. I, I'd be curious to hear what those songs were in comparison to this one. Um, I do love the line about we're exiles from the human race. Yeah, yeah, you know? that's one of my favorite lines. That's a, great, yeah. that's a great line, and it's a line that you could probably only use in a Kiss song <laughs> or a band like Kiss. 
Um, because it, doesn't that harken back to Flaming Youth, that whole oh, theme of destroy? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, the, yeah. we are you the outcasts. We are right. We yes. are the alienated underdogs. That yeah, exactly. And they hate the um, things I do. Yeah, right. <laughs> that's right. That's well, that, right. That keeps with the whole theme of the album, which is sort of a love. It's a love letter to fans. I mean, that's what it really is. I mean, that whole um, yes, the whole uh, you know, the whole album seems like that. You know what I mean? If I have one criticism of this song, it's that it's ultimately kind of shallow. It's about going to a KISS concert. And I think that there's a missed opportunity there, at least by the end of the song, to make it about something that's a little bit more universal, right? There's no reason on the last chorus, Paul Stanley couldn't say, life's a psycho circus. And I say, welcome to the show, because that idea uh, yeah. that, you know, we need to, you know, life for all of its marvels and all of its insanity, the only response that you can have to it is to embrace it, right? And all the world's a stage and you're a part of it. So we say, welcome to the show. Yeah. Good Excellent point. point. And, I, you know, to reinforce that as well, I think, uh, Dave, you and I have had conversations about how uh, and you pointed this out to me, how there's sort of similarities between uh, this song and the Alice Cooper song, Hello, Hooray. Yes. Right? Yes. Yeah, it's, it's definite. <laughs> you know, they were contemporaries, you know, and they're not, you know. On this album, more way than one. Right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So. And we'll get to that. Yeah. yeah the inevitable lawsuit. Um, <laughs> but, uh, okay. So second song, Within. John? Uh, sounds like it was written originally for Carnival of Souls. I probably would have liked it on Carnival of Souls. Um, interesting thing that Gene does with this is he uses the idea of, did you fly without wings? Did you touch without feeling? He uses that lyrical theme on this song and then on another song that he does. I mean, it's almost yeah, like- there's a, there's a callback to it in Journey of a Thousand Years. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I, I kind of dig it. It's um, one of the interesting things about this album is there are no, it is nothing but anthems. Um, very little, no songs about Paul or Gene's dick. You know what I mean? In the, in the entire album, you know what I mean? There's nothing in the, in the album uh, like that. And um, within, I mean, again, I, I would have liked to have heard it on Psycho Circus I mean, sorry, not Psycho Circus, on Carnival of Souls. Um, but it's not, it's definitely, it's not bad. I like the song. It's definitely, you know, it's not one I, I don't skip it. You know what I mean? I liked it and I like the, um, you know, I like the idea of it, but I just, it seems kind of, it's a vague song. You know what I mean? And it has a, um, this, is it the one that has the weird like mosh part in the middle? You know what I mean? Where it just sort of switches up. How yeah, the sort of chugging the triplets that feel, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I thought that was kind of interesting, but also a little, again, a little vague, like it's not a centered song. I don't, can't really say what it's about or really anything like that. So I don't know. So give it, I mean, I give it a, you know, a, a, a six out of 10, you know what I mean? Dave? You know, this is a song I've always liked and I, I, John is right. It was written around the time of uh, Carnival of Souls. And um, it, it kind of reminds me a little bit, in just some way, there's just some spirit to the song that reminds me of uh, something that Gene kind of channeled back in Love Gun with Almost Human. Mm -hmm. uh, 
Yeah, they're not a one-to-one, and I'm not suggesting that they're a one-to-one song and it's a, it's a rip of Almost Human in any way, but there's just a, something about the song that kind of reminds me of a nod to that that song. And I don't, it definitely wasn't overt, and I know Gene wasn't conscious of that when he wrote it, but for me as a fan, it just reminded me of that, that, that sense of Gene. And, um, but it's a confounded song in a way because it kind of lays the foundation for the rest of the record. I really like the song. But I, God dang, I would have liked it a whole lot better, I think, if it would have been the original four guys. And I'll leave it at that. Yeah. Yeah, that is a good point. Mike? Oh, uh, yeah, for sure. Well, even just with you, the, the guitar intro, you can tell that that, might, that would have been, if you're a Kiss fan, if you're familiar with their catalog, that would have been something that Bruce Kulik would have might have done, you know, straight yeah. away. And it sounded like, it's funny because they, they come out with this, you know, killer opening track, which could have been, you know, an on, you know, an album like Destroyer. And then they go left field into something that sounds like something they did, you know, a year or two previous with a, a different lineup. It was a weird, you know, twist and, and turn in terms of direction with the record. But at the same time, it, it works on record. Um, but I, I, you know, they played this live on the tour and I don't think it worked in, in a live presentation, you know, much more less so than, you know, Psycho Circus did in a way. It was a weird plotting song to play and it really didn't add anything to the show. They had other songs on the record that could have been stronger contenders, you know, for set list, you know, inclusive songs. Uh, but as a song itself, I mean, it's, there's a lot of interesting things that Gene says in the lyrics too, but I, I just, you know, I, there's a difference between, again, you know, the studio version and what they did live. It just wasn't the kind of song that an audience, especially an audience that might not be, you know, if you're new to Kiss and you want to you know, get get to know what Kiss is all about, this song is not going to give you anything to take home and, and to, del- to delve into in, in a live presentation, you know, other than the fact that it happens to be on the record that they released and this was the touring behind, so. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, um, depending on your perspective, I mean, the lyrics, you know, are sort of this pseudo mystical hodgepodge. Um, Paul Stanley actually kind of made fun of them at one point saying, you know, Gene's coming to Bruce with these songs like, you know, uh, feet without toes and, you know, hands without eyes and all this stuff. It's like, okay. Um, but there, there is something that's kind of interesting here. I don't think that it's completely random. I mean, if you look at the lyrics, and, and so, there's a lot of callbacks uh, to to things that have come before, right? So if you know the lines, "Night without day, every day is black as the night," um, is kind of a callback to "Young and Wasted." The night goes on for days. Um, the idea of fly without wings, nothing is real, um, is kind of, he's bringing up now a paradox, right? Where nothing is what it seems, nothing is real. And then later on in the album, he'll say the exact opposite of, of that. And we are one, it's all real, right? And I think that there's an essential truth about that, about Kiss, which is, yes, on one hand, nothing is real. They're not actually living superheroes. They're not the demon. He doesn't really fly. He doesn't really breathe fire. It's all it's all special effects and it's all makeup and all that kind of stuff. But in another way, everything is real. It's not CGI. Right. Yeah. I mean, they're using wires. Yeah. They, the guy that's afraid of heights is risking his life going up to the top of the arena or the stadium every single time. So everything that they're doing 
is in a, in a different sense, as real as it could possibly be. Um, you know, when he says, um, I wanna be where I've been, in a sense, that's what the reunion tour was all about, mm -hmm. right? I mean, is, is recreating their own past. Um, and then he says, I want something more than you'll know is in a sense a callback to, I believe in something more than you can understand from I, right? And the whole mm -hmm. idea of follow myself and go where you can never go is a callback to, I experiment with myself the whole idea of, of self-creation by going within. Um, the one line that really sticks out that, that catches me is inside you without your blessing, inside me is me confessing. Because when you hear that, I don't know what you guys think that means. It's almost to me, sounds like Gene is confessing to and I hate to say this, but if you're inside somebody without their blessing, there's a word for that, and it's called rape. With a capital R, yeah. Yep. Yeah. So. Yeah. And unless, unless he's talking about some kind of possession. Yeah, I was. I I take that as sort of a takeoff on his demon character, but. Yeah, I mean, I guess you could argue that's a quality of music. Music enters you, not necessarily with your blessing. Right. But at the same time, there is that alternate alter, alter interpretation. Mm -hmm. Sure. I thought about that too. So. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> not just me then. No, okay. no, no. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I pledge allegiance to the state of rock and roll. My 11-year-old really liked it. <laughs> and I mean, it's again, it's a good song. You know what I mean? I... I uh, Again, it's another anthem. It's funny because generally in these albums, when the cock rock songs come out, they either write anthem, Kiss writes anthems or they write cock rock songs. You know what I mean? And this album, so at this point, I'm like, I, I can't do another um, anthem. You know, like I, I, I'm a little sick of it. There's got to be something else here. Um, even though I, I guess, no, I, I guess that's not the case. But I mean, that's what happens later when we're at Raise, Our, Raise Your Glasses. I guess I was like, is this really going to be nothing but anthems? Um, so I, I don't mind it. It sounds like um, they're trying to recapture God Gave Rock and Roll to You or something like that. Mm. Um, it doesn't like super stand out as being great, but I don't mind it. Dave? Yeah, this, uh, you know, uh, this, this is a song where you miss the potential production or the thought of what Bruce Fairbone should have brought to the table. Mm. It just seems like it's missing elements to this song. It's, it's, it's underrealized. Yeah. That's it. It's, it's not finished. Yeah. It's like a rush job on the production and, you know, and it's, you know, it's like, and as much as I love dress to kill, we know the story behind what happened with dress to kill and the circumstances, right. You know, just get in, get, we don't even have enough material to fill up an, an album. And, and maybe that album, you know, in some way, um, it's kind of like this it's a little lean in, in, in some places. And this is one. Mm -hmm. um, and I do though, I do like the live version, which is really not what we're talking about here, but Knowing I've heard the live version before, it just leads me to believe that there was much left to be said in this song um, with, with the right production. Mm. Mike? Yeah, I think it's got all the classic elements of a, of a cool, you know, classic Kiss song. That, that sort of, you know, 
snare drum on on all counts on, on the chorus it like shout out loud it's great it's strong um it's a great vocal delivery by paul um Production wise, the guitars are a little harsh. You know, typically you get a little more warmer, martially kind of tone from Kiss. You can tell that they do their homework and they do their tone research. This almost sounds like one somebody's playing through like a Mesa Boogie triple rectifier amplifier that's got way too much gain and has nothing to do with, you know, a classic rock band like, you know, like Kiss. Um, I think lyrically it, it's a cool theme and I think it probably would have worked maybe even better than Psycho Circus as an, as an opener to the, to the set, to the show um, mm. on tour. Um, but you know, production-wise, one of my favorite things about this song is I think the third there was like the guitar solo, right? And they go to like the third pass, they're playing licks, and there's that one thing where they do like the string pose, like a whirl, and then it goes from the front to the back. I mean, that is such a Eddie Kramer, Jimi Hendrix kind of. It's in front of you, it's behind you. If you listen to it in headphones, it's badass. If you're in the car, it's it's it goes. From, you know who who records 3D music? You know nobody. <laughs> right, nobody. Right. I mean, I've heard of people like hanging speakers on a pulley and trying to record you know, 3D music. Like you know, Hendrix tried to do that stuff. They accomplished that on this record, which is one of my things. It's dear to my heart. They did that. Bravo. You know, that's one of my favorite parts of, of the song. But either way, I think this might this probably would have been an opener to, to the set. Um, and it's you know, it's it's a strong track. And yes, it could be considered an anthem. Um, but either way, it, it works. It's one of the stronger songs on this record for sure. Yeah. I'm, you know, I think to the extent that it works, it works because there's a fundamental truth behind it, which is that Paul has given his blood and his soul and made yeah. great sacrifices in terms of, you know, being able to see his children and his family and all that kind of stuff uh, to be out there on the road year after year, album after album. And, you know, great sacrifices in terms of his health, all the multiple operations he's had and his shoulder and even operations that I maybe know that he's had that I can't talk about. Yeah, car <laughs> accidents or, yeah, you name it. You yeah. know, I mean, but there's a lot. I mean, they really have sacrificed themselves for rock and roll. And I think that is, you know, kind of what makes the song work, but I think it's awkward. I think I pledge allegiance to the state of rock and roll. He's trying to play upon the idea, like, you know, of, of a pledge allegiance, mm -hmm. right, to the state of the United States of America. But the state of rock and roll could be changing. Like one year rap rock could be in and the next year it could be new metal and then it could be speed metal. And, you know, are you really pledging allegiance to whatever the latest fad is or are you pledging allegiance to rock and roll itself? I think Paul goes back to this kind of idea on Monster, on the song Freak, when he says, I pledge allegiance to the state of independence. And I think that's so much better expressed and su such a much better line and so much closer to what he was really trying to say. Well, think about though, again, going back to Destroyer, mm -hmm. Flaming Youth, yeah. you know, the lyrical, you know, the lyrical aspect of that, at least, is our flag is flying higher. It's, yeah. You know, you, one of Paul's, right? Great, great point, yeah. Yeah, I just think this is, this is awkward. I mean, right, no, I get what you're saying, but I'm saying, I wonder how much of Destroyer mm, yeah. in Paul's head mm. when he approached this record. Right. Yeah, funny, funny point too, though, about this song, um, you know, uh, you know there's, a, there's, there's like this uh, Ted Nugent song, I think he's, it's called, uh, State, it's, it's actually an album called State of Shock, and he's like, this is a song from State of Shock, and yes, it's just south of Detroit, like, is, you know, the state of rock and roll estate on the map somewhere, and you can only belong, <laughs> 
you, if you only live there or you can you know believe in this concept in a way you know um but also too i remember the intro to the song as soon as i heard it, i thought wait I've, I've heard this somewhere else it reminds me of i will follow from you too right yep mm. yeah yeah but still it does start with that guitar sound and that sort of open uh open room tone that you two gets with that yeah yeah good point yeah. hadn't thought yeah, of that but now that you mentioned it yeah Okay, so moving on to the one song <laughs> yeah. on this album that really does feature all four members of the original band, Into the Void. Oh, really? This is the only one. This is the only one that has everybody on it. I didn't realize that. I actually like it a lot. I, again, it's uh, Ace Fraley could probably read, you know, sing the Telephone Book, and I'd like it. I just like his way of sort of his delivery and how he does it and how he sounds badass, even if it's essentially a good decade after uh, his other stuff. Had Fraley's Comet come out at this point? Oh, yeah. So, yeah. So, I, I really like his uh, delivery in it. I like the way that it sounds. Um, again, vague sort of um, uh, lyrics, but also sort of about how he's getting back into being in Kiss, you know what I mean? Sort of a self, uh, you know, the void of being in a rock band or whatever. Um at least that's the way I sort of read it. Um, Dave? Well, this started out as Shaking Sharpshooter, right? Shaking Six Sharpshooter. Six Gun Sharpshooter, I think. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. And, um, you know, for whatever, they didn't like the title. But, uh, you know, it's one of the Aces Space songs now, right? Um, you know, I, I, there's moments of, of, of the, over the years that I, I was less enamored with this track. But what always brings me back to this is the, the inner 13-year-old fan in me, the, you know, the ultra fan boy, um, is that all four of my idols are playing together again on the same track. And that has a, an attraction for me that is, that is tangible and, and, and makes me really love the song. And, uh, you know, I, I'm just glad they, they had at least one moment like this on this record. Mike? To you know, bolster Dave's point, I mean, it really is that you know the, the sort of defining moment on this record where you the four guys playing together on the same song, and that's that comes through on this track. I mean, it's you know, it's not that vastly different from you know what, what Kevin's doing on drums and other songs, but at the same time, it sounds like Peter Chris. It sounds like a Kiss song, and maybe you don't need somebody else to come in and play on a Kiss album. Maybe you just need the four guys to get in a room and, and write some songs and, and play them and record them. <laughs> it might be better yeah. than, you know, and this is no discredit to any of the players on the record, whether Bruce Kuehler or Tommy Thayer or Kevin Valentine. But, you know, there's definitely something about this track where amidst the, you know, the crazy production stuff that's going on that we talked about, it, it, this track works. It sounds like more like a classic Kiss record than you know than, than yeah, the rest sounds of, like of the, the album, you know? And part of that is you know Ace's vocal delivery sounds like you know anything he has done either on his '78 solo album or his uh, you know Trouble Walking record. I mean, it, it sounds like Ace. You know, it's it's he, he does what he does. But also too, from the guitar perspective, when you hear him playing solos, you can tell like Ace has a sound and his you know that super distortion DiMarzio pickup is set up right next to the strings on his Les Paul, and it's not so overdriven it's not so you know distorted but it's it's almost like a, it almost sounds like between a humbuck a humbucker and a single coil pickup and it's you can hear the string hitting that pickup and it's coming through you know and that's that's ace's sound there's a presence and a clarity to that 
that is nowhere else yeah. on this record. It sounds like Ace playing, you know, sorry, there's other songs where he, he plays on this record, but when you hear that sound, you know it's Ace. Yeah. Well, I think it works, but I also, you know, the lyrically, I question the things about like, you know, I'm, you know, I'm losing power and I don't know why I'm you know, being pulled into the void. It's like, you know, there's a, it, there's a tug and pull with this record. Like, yes, we're here together as a team and, you know, we're going to, we've got our, our, you know, our issues in the past and we're going to put on a, you know, a full front, you know, face and, and go forward. And this is us. And we're going to tour behind this record. But there's also the other side of it too, where they're kind of like questioning it. Like I'm being pulled into this. I'm being pulled into the void, you know, and I, I want to get away. Like, where are you guys? You know, <laughs> lyrically, it goes in a couple of different directions. You know, they could, I think yeah. Dave, you probably would, would agree with me. They probably could have thought through some of the lyrics and put more of a united front. Well, I, lyrically, I, the song, I mean, you know, it's kind of spacey or whatever, but it's not really fish nor fowl. It's not really about anything, yeah. right? right? They kind yeah. of try to make it almost the, the typical Ace Fairly sexual double entendre. You know, I feel like I'm entering a black, black hole, hole that yeah. with Rocket Ride. And, you know, it's almost like Ace actually goes back to this and rewrites the song as Inside the Vortex mm. on his more recent solo album. And it works better that way because then that's what he's actually talking about. But I agree with you guys. It's kind of half that generic spacey, half, you know, wannabe sexual double entendre, and then half like he's just getting sucked back into playing with Kiss and he's not happy about it. And it's hard yeah, to that's get- that's how I take, I mean, yeah. there's, a, there's a little bit of, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. There's no, a little okay. bit, yeah, there's some sort of, you can there's a couple of moments when listening to this album and i was like if you applied auteur theory or deconstructionism to the lyrics of these songs you would see that these are sort of them actually working out their own problems in a lot of ways <laughs> it seems, that's, how, that's how into the void sort of read for me was like he's talking about being put back into kiss and not necessarily really like against yes yeah. that's why I, I took it and then later i'll there's another song um that's sort of similar to that so, but I do agree with you, you guys. When this is the one song where you can feel the chemistry of the four original guys, and you know that counter melody part that during the chorus that oh, yeah. is played by one of the guitars, it's kind of a descending thing. Mm -hmm. Paul mm -hmm. came up with that, and it's a great part, it and it really makes the song work during the chorus in a way that I don't think it would otherwise. I want to hear a whole album of the guys coming up with interesting cool parts on each other's songs like that yeah me too i think we all do <laughs> we're still waiting for it <laughs> yeah yeah okay we are one uh, um my favorite anthem on here i i like it again it's like a love song you know i see myself looking back at me or whatever the lyric is or i see me inside of you um again a love letter to the fans um that are rediscovering kiss at that time because they're putting the makeup back on um you know it's got a great sing-along you know um chorus um you know lyrically it, it feels finished to me like there's nothing lacking in it i understand what they're going for um and i generally but I, again this is i'm like hey another anthem right on you know so i liked it dave like it, you know. I love the uh, little descending uh, off the top of my head. Listening to it in my head right now, 
that little chord progression he's got in there, you with those clean jangly guitars and yeah, um, you know it is a great little anthem. It's it's a it's a nice song. Um, I remember you know on many camping trips back then with my when my sons were young, uh, between here and driving the drive to Utah, we'd listen to that record and, and there was two songs that made those boys light up and sing out loud. Hmm. This one and Two Thousand Man. Okay. Get him to shut up, and I would hear those those two songs for the rest of the trip, <laughs> and which made the you know Papa Bear here very very happy. By the way, but it's a it's a it's a it's a, it's a good it's a great Gene song. Mike, I like the fact that they you know revisit the theme of you know Gene singing like and I see my face looking back at me, which could have been you know the fan wearing Gene Simmons makeup. You know he sees you know that that that's cool. I think from my perspective, you know. As a songwriter, I think the verses are stronger than the chorus, though. You know, I, I don't really think the chorus delivers as much because, you know, the verses are so interesting and they're so storytelling. But when you get to like the word, you're like, we, that is not the kind of word that really translates to a, a chorus in a sustained way. Like, it's like, we, it's kind of annoying. You know, like, we are one. You know? Does it really work? <laughs> and we, it should, it's, it's almost like she went like, we are one or something like, you know, it just, if there's one thing about this song, it's like the chorus could have been, they maybe could have come up with a different lyric or a different delivery of, of you know, the cadence of, of the lyric. But either way, I mean, I, I think, yeah, again, the verse to me is stronger than the chorus in terms of delivery. It's a callback too. I mean, Paul says we are one in Psycho Circus. Um, now, in previous conversations yeah. you and I have had about the song, Mike, you've complained about the, some of the lyrics too being, uh, you know, the repeating of, you know, deep inside. And it, it, in some ways it does kind of feel lyrically like this is a first draft, like, like it, it could be a little bit more refined. Mm -hmm. um, and, but I do think when he says, once upon a time you were a child, but that was yesterday, believe that magic in your heart would never fade away, uh, but keep hope alive and, deep inside and your dreams will never die. I think part of the reason why the reunion worked so good and, and so well for so many people at the time it happened is there is this phenomenon and they make a joke about it on The Simpsons where they say, you know, everything I loved as a child and hated as a teenager, I love now that I'm a middle-aged adult, right? <laughs> and, and so for a lot of people that went to the reunion, they were children the last time they were into Kiss. Mm -hmm. And this was, you know, seeing Kiss again reconnected they themselves to that part of themselves in a kind of profound and meaningful way. Um, you know, the second verse when he talks about um, they've brought you back to life again, um, Gene said in interviews that he was talking about Ace Frehley and Peter Chris specifically, mm. you know, the, the fans have really reinvigorated them and, and re, you know, reignited their careers and, and, you know, that there's something kind of Christian about that, the idea of the rebirth and, or, you know, being reborn, almost like a Phoenix kind of thing, which I think is, is interesting. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, when he, when he does the, uh, I guess you'd call it the bridge, he says, um, you are me, I am you, what you see is all true. Every, every one of us is inside of you. Um, I think is really interesting because we've gone from the last album to saying you were just like me and I was just like you to saying we are one, right? I know myself, therefore I know you all. And Joseph Campbell talks about like 
there are times when people, you know, in a split second, risk their life to save a stranger and don't even have time to consciously think about the fact that they're putting themselves in peril to do that. And that it's in some way, the life force itself is taking over and life is helping to preserve life because they realize on some level that we are all as humans are one. So I do think there's kind of a profound aspect to the song as well. Well, there's another profound aspect of this song is the irony of the title, if you think about it. Mm -hmm. you know, and if he's talking at all about Ace and Peter and, and this at all lyrically, um, it is the, the rich irony of this entire record with this, song, with this particular song title is, no, we are not. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, like that's not lost on me either. Yeah. No, you're right. You're, I, I mean, you're absolutely right. And Gene, you know, definitely has an aspect of himself that romanticizes the original lineup. He wrote a demo for a song I'm sure you've heard, Dave, called Forever, where he spelled it F O U R E V E R about how Kiss is just the original four guys, and that's it. Now, if you were to call this now, and because John and I are both, you know, Yes fans, oh, yeah. you know, they were only a, a member or two shy, really, of doing what Yes did, in essence, uh, with their classic lineups on Union. Now, if they would have done that, then yeah, we are one. You know, that would have, oh. you know, that that fit. But in this particular case, it just kind of was window dressing of, of the facade that was happening, um, and maybe the marketing and the sales that were going on there, maybe even the wishful thinking that Gene had. You know, again, it doesn't take away from the song for me, but I, I do find it ironic that, that, you know, that they're talking about how they are, in fact, as one, because they were not, especially during this period. I feel you. <laughs> right? Yeah, that is that is an interesting point. Yeah. Mm. I was going to say, it's funny, too, because when you think about, you know, all the instances where the, these guys have been together on the Kiss Cruises, you know, they've all been in the same situation. And, you know, they've done different levels of, you know, lineups, but to my recollection, recollection, have they ever been on all in the same time with you know, everybody that is currently still alive in, in the Kiss Camp, you know, playing the same song, right? That's never happened. Right? Yeah, I think they came close last Kiss Cruise. I, they didn't have Vinny, obviously. Okay, but they, they didn't have Peter Chris, you know. Right, you or know, Peter, right. You know. All right, you wanted the best. Okay, so this is where I got the whole uh, tour theory thing based on the fact that they are literally arguing with each other in the verses. And then even though I, I don't know if that's what they're trying to do, but it seems like they're actually arguing with each other. Um, you know, they're saying, you know, uh, even though it's originally you would interpret it as them saying this to the outside world, you know, the tell me when I can play, what I can't do, that kind of stuff. But actually, I think he's really saying, you told me I couldn't play here, uh, Paul Stanley, you know what I mean, in this part of the song. And These are all taken from quotes that, that each member has said about them, the other members. In, in oh, okay. All right, yeah. all right. I didn't even realize that. Okay. I, I made a point of not doing any research on this album because I was actually, I actually enjoyed it too much. So I was afraid... <laughs> Okay. All right. Well, then uh, I guess it does exactly what it's supposed to do. So yeah, it sounds like them um, arguing, but then they they come back together for the you wanted the best in the uh, the chorus, which is I mean I you know I walked around for days humming this song, you know. So I actually uh, dig it quite a bit. Dave, 
no, this is a song that I like, but I really would like to like more. Yeah. Because, you know, it, it is, I love the, again, the romantic aspect of my inner 13 year old again coming out is all my, my heroes are on one song in some manner. Yes. Right. right. Peter's on not vocal. on drums, but Ace does the solo and they're all singing. Yeah. And I think Peter's on there vocally in yeah. some way. Oh, he is. You know? Yeah. So, you know, so all four of them are making that appearance. But then there's this thing I mean, when you get to the very end of it. I don't particularly care for the, the, the banter on the fade out. Right. You know, when they're going back and forth. And oh, yeah, it's this. a little weirdly pretentious. Yes. Yeah. It's maybe Paul is inner, you know, beetle, you know, yeah. the, you know, that playfulness and talking on the record and all that. But it, it just doesn't work for me, you know, and uh, I just I, I, if you would just take that part out, we remix it. I'd probably like the song a whole bunch better. OK, Mike, that is a good point. That is a very stupid part of the song. Yeah. yeah, it's not really a great, you know, sort of punctuation to what, what you know, which could be, you know, a strong song on the record. Um, but, you know, again, we, we've spoken about production. I mean, you know, compare this to the production on Aerosmith Pump. I mean, those guitars on Aerosmith Pump are crisp and clear and, you know, pronounced. On this album, on this song, there's like feedback in between the tracks. It almost seems like a demo, like, you know, who's like, who's the engineer on this thing? Like there's- It's really raw. It's really in fact, raw. there's like one point, there's like a, like a, like a mistake you can clearly hear in the guitar yeah. where you're kind of like, nobody could clean that up and we couldn't cut that part out. I you mean, know, couldn't do another take, like- But maybe too, you know, <laughs> the idea was let's sound edgy and on the cuff and you're off the cuff, sorry. And, you know, and that's what it's going to be. But at the same time too, <laughs> it's a major, major, you know, label record. And this is what you're going to produce in terms of, you know, guitar tones, like, yeah, but okay, that, that's my one issue with the song. The second issue I have with the song is, if you're going to, again, there's a theme here. If you're going to provide a united front, then the thing you don't want to discuss with your public is, we've got these issues. However, we're going to put that aside and under duress, you wanted the best. <laughs> And you right, got the right, best, right. you know. Like I, I feel really <laughs> good about that, that I, you know. Which oh, would have been a good line for the song, actually. Under, under duress, <laughs> you wanted the best. Do you see what I mean? You the yeah, best. it doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know that that's that's key flaw of this song. Like really, okay. All of a sudden, you you know, we're gonna all okay. Then you you know you you ask and you know or we, you demand and we request whatever the, the line is. You know, but you get my yeah, point. We yeah. hear and you obey our wishes, your yeah. command. Yeah, or yeah. Um, yeah, I agree. I mean, the production is really raw. It sounds like unmixed almost, and and it's just, um, it, it, yeah. And it, it, my point too on the mix too is, you know, it only sounds better if you turn it up. I don't know why that is. If you have it like a low yeah. volume in the car or low volume on the headphones, it sounds like there's a blanket over the speakers. You've got to crank it up in order for it to sound better. And you shouldn't have to do yeah. that <laughs> with a record with the, with that kind of major stature, you know, produced. You know? Right, right. Um, I do think lyrically, I mean, there's something refreshing about the honesty of the verses that they're not trying to say, oh, yeah, we're all brothers. We all love each other. I mean, they're being honest about the fact that, that many of them actively loathe each other. Um, but <laughs> but there's something weird about the chorus, too. Mm -hmm. Like, like one thing we haven't really talked about is that I would say 90 5% of Kiss songs have a really good reciprocity in terms of the melody 
and what the content of the song is about and the and the and the arrangement of the song if it's a dark song the melody is dark if it's a happy song then the melody is happy and the arrangement supports that but like the chorus you wanted the best you got the best they're doing this weird almost like not for the innocent tritone kind of thing mm. that makes it sound kind of dark and menacing, mm -hmm. you know, and it's like, yeah, you wanted the best and the best is coming now to kill you in your sleep or something. And <laughs> it's like, I don't know why. I mean, it's supposed to be a joyful celebration of the reunion. Yeah. And there's this weird darkness to it that like, I, you know, just doesn't really work for me. No, because you get all those like flat fifth, you know, chord structures in the chorus. I mean, it's really not a happy chorus, whereas it should have been a happy chorus. It, it, you wanted the best, you you got the best. It definitely works as an intro to their live show, but does not work as the chorus of the Kiss song. Yeah. Weird how that could yeah, be. Good well, this is actually one of my thoughts. One of the things that I've been thinking about for all the last several albums that we've been going over is what should Kiss do? You know what I mean? Like what what is the point of... Um, you know, they're, they're just putting out the album after album that is, you know, supposedly going to rock. This one's going to be better than the last one. This one, you know, that kind of stuff. Would, what would be the thing that they could do um, that is, uh, you know, because they've been coasting this or they've been going this long. And I think this is actually a good example of what they can do. They're starting to get self-referential. I mean, mm -hmm. we all, uh, David, you and I read a lot of comic books. You know that uh, co most comic books now are um, references to older comics. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Like some of the comics mm -hmm. we like, like Astro City, um, things like that, you know, where they're uh, referencing, um, you know, ideas from the past or whatever. And so this almost struck me when I was listening to it is this is where Kiss needs to go now is they need to be maybe start to personalize what they do um but then again would the fans follow them probably not no one would no one wants an introspective kiss album but i think mm. this is where it starts you know what i mean like this you wanted the best where they talk about what they dislike about the other members of the band and things like that it strikes me as that maybe this is where they're supposed to move um, yeah my, my response to that though would be that self-reference can very easily become a trap especially in pop right music. You know, like you, you agreed, agreed. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it does, but mm. it's sort of it's interesting because it seems like they're taking a step out of writing a generic rock song in this one because they're right. actually. But I mean, I think of bands like Manowar, where at a certain point they stopped writing songs about new subject matter, and much of their songs are just lyrics that reference previous songs or album titles. Right. Or, yeah. You know, and and you know, at a certain point, it's just like, well, that's just okay. We're not, we're not, the, the we're not advancing anywhere. We're not saying anything new by by referencing our own past. All right, good point. True, yeah, yeah. I mean, they're they're not really advancing in that way, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I I always think to myself, where can they go from from this stage? You know what I mean? What are they supposed to do? That's, you know, what would be the next step in there? Um, can I can I point something out too? I mean, think about this. Um, if it's going to be about airing dirty laundry, which maybe this song might be about, yeah. Um, it if interesting how if you compare this record to Fleetwood Mac Rumors, 
when there was a lot of discord going on in that band, there was a lot of, you know, sleeping with the other, the other person's lover and, you know, we're writing songs about, you know, you know, I don't want to be, listen to rumors and you'll get it, right? That can, seems to me a, a more genuine um, presentation in terms of, you know, a, a, a lyric standpoint, like it, it seems more honest. Whereas I think they're maybe trying too hard to tie in the concept of the fact that we did the reunion, we're going to write a song about re reuniting, and this is what it is, and this is our past, and we're going to air the dirty laundry, and we're going to write a song about that. It, it, it almost seems forced in a way, you know. It doesn't seem like, you know. Whereas if you take like you know, you know, go your own way, Fleetwood Mac. Granted, it's a major, major hit. It's a major AM FM radio hit, but like. There's a there's a genuine you know heartfelt sentiment going on there. Whereas this seems kind of like okay, what are we gonna do? What do you got? I got an idea about let's write a song about us fighting and then make it seem like we're all together. Hmm. You know, yeah, you know, and, and you're okay, exactly. all right, yeah, uh, good I, idea. I hear what it's saying. a great idea, but does, is it really a, you know a concept that works you know from a selling point? Maybe not. I don't know. You know, you look at I don't know if you guys are Alice Cooper fans, but we're going to get into him in a second. I'm a huge Alice Cooper fan, and you know, if you look at the new Alice Cooper box that yeah. came out, you know, there's a song on there called "I Hate You." Yeah, which and, in a way is kind of like Alice's take on this, but it's a much go. more it's interesting, more creative song. Hmm. Yes, but it lightly, the spirit is different, right? It's taken almost tongue in cheek. There's many serious things said in there, but the, the, the delivery was completely different, right? They're kind and of, so, it's done with a sense of humor where they're kind of taking yeah. the piss out of each other. Mm. Where, where one of the lines in it, by the way, you should pick it up if you haven't heard the new Ask Cooper album, it's really good. Um, but one of the lines in it is, uh, <laughs> you may be the the guitar, America's guitarist, but you're no Jeff Beck. You know? <laughs> yeah, but see, it, it, it took the weight out of the, let's try to be overly serious and yeah. you know something you know, really, Fleetwood Mac was great about writing hate letters to each yeah. other on rumors, Absolutely, right? Dave, yeah. Um, it, it came off as, as, as very poignant, very sincere, very deep, very meaningful, all that. Mm. Um, you know, it was their therapy album to each other, right? Yeah. Um, air your dirty laundry in public, but it just didn't work for Kiss. No. It better served to take the Alice Cooper approach and almost do a tongue-in-cheek where they're making fun of each other in a very light-mannered way where you go, okay, I get it. Right. You know, but this, this, no, not so much. Although would Alice have written that song if it hadn't been for this song? I guarantee you that oh. uh, Alice is aware of this song through Bob. You think? Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Perhaps. So maybe it spawns something better ultimately. Um, raise your glasses. Uh, again, another anthem. It's fine. It's It's the weakest one, I think, on the album mm. in terms of their like we're celebrating our past. Um, another love letter to the fans feels like filler. Don't disagree. I, I actually, um, referring to our earlier conversation about that CD single that came out with mm. the VHS of, it, you know, it had that unmixed version, if you would, almost a demo of this. Mm. Uh -huh. I that for that song, for this particular song, was much more effective to my ears than what ended, ended up on this record. Hmm. Um, I could do without this song. You know, compare this to a song that has a similar chord structure uh, from the 78 uh, Paul Stanley solo, Wouldn't You Like to Know Me? I think that's, you know, that's what this song should have sounded like, and it doesn't really come across that way. Hmm. Uh, but at the same time, too, like, you know, if you're going to write a song about, you know, your perspective about, you know, the things you've gone through in life, and then you write a chorus, 
that almost sounds like it could have been like a a, a, a beer commercial, you know, like raise your glasses. It, you know, it, it does sound like a beer right? commercial. Yeah, like I feel like I've heard it like, you know, you know, here's the good times. Not just kind of special. The beer is, let it be low right. you know. Okay, great. You know, that's what it sounds like to me. That the chorus. Soldiers in your top. Right. Yeah. You know, here's, you know, what's, what's the, the Schaefer when you're having more than one, you know. Okay, so, yeah. Or if not a beer commercial, then definitely a song that sounds very, in a very contrived way to have been um, written with the thought that it should be played at sports events. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I you know, did they put uh, what's the history on the Kiss uh, indoor football team? Kaput, kaput. <laughs> it's the history. <laughs> yeah, I you know, I mean, again, it seems like they had good intentions, but like, did they really think it through? Yeah, I thought it was interesting, Dave. You gave me an early demo of the song that actually has quite different lyrics. Um, yeah. that I thought was was interesting. I like the verses. Mm -hmm. um, I think the verses are much stronger than the chorus. I think there's kind of an interesting Beatles by way of cheap trick mel melody thing that Paul's doing there. Um, the, there's a chord progression in there, one, five, four, that is kind of a rock cliche. I mean, you, you most- Yeah, I, I call it, I, that's funny. I call it the reverse one. I call it the reverse one four five. It's yeah, the, it's the Bubba O'Reilly, the Who, and I mean, yeah, the Who does it. A lot of bands do it all the time. But as cliche as it is, it's one of those cliches that Kiss hasn't really used hmm. up until this point. So it's kind of yeah. interesting that they finally went there. Um, but yeah, ultimately, it's a beer commercial. I finally found my way to you. I understand it's got to, there has to be a Peter Chris ballad on the album. I kept wanting to say something pithy or funny about the song or, or like really whatever, but it just, it would go in one ear and out the other. And I feel terrible for saying that. Mike, I'm sure there's something going on in the music that you can tell me that makes, that makes me feel like I missed something. But uh, yeah, I, I don't, I don't like it even though part of me is like, Oh, it's the Peter Chris ballad. You know um, it didn't really stand out to me. Dave. Yeah, I know this is the formula. This is, again, harking back to Destroyer. You know, Peter's ballad on there, you know, and, uh, you know, of course, there's the rock and roll over part of that, too, right, with Hard Luck Woman, and Paul, I think, penned this one, right? Yeah. Uh, primarily, so his presence is certainly felt this time as, you know, uh, in contrast to Hard Luck Woman, which was a good song, by the way. Oh, yeah. This this one is not. Um, this one does, does, does this nothing. This is not a good song. Yeah, you know, it's just it's 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 there to to fit the need to have a, a Peter Chris ballad, but it's not an effective Peter Chris ballad. It's well written. Certainly, I'm not taking anything away from the writing and the and, and the chords and none of that. But it just it doesn't move me in any way at all. It just feels like it's contrived and it's forced. Yeah, Mike. Yeah, I've read you know, a lot of interviews uh, with the guys, and I think that you know maybe Peter had other songs that he presented to the to the group, and you know I'd love to know what those were because to me this just seems like an obligation he's fulfilling. Like this is you're going to sing this song, and that's what it is, 
And this isn't any better, any worse than the, the song they released on whatever that soundtrack album was that they put out. You know, and, and, nothing can keep me from you. Yeah, you know, like the whole like Diane Warren approach. You know, with the strings and all this. It it, it doesn't sound like a Kiss song. You know. But yeah. Um, and also too, you know, when they get to the the, the bridge, like we got Paul and, and Peter singing together, like you know, we dance the night away. Like, what what is that all about? You know, like. Are you a Peter and really my my issue with the song is what is the song really about? Is it about a relationship with you know a guy and a girl or you know a partner or whatever and 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 that's what it is or how does this tie into the theme of the album or is it the conflict and the and the, the come together of the approach to the United Front? Like what does this tie into that concept or is it something else outside of that? Yeah. Is it because you know Peter and Paul are you know they reconciled and they're, and they're cool with each other and that's it or is it about a relationship? It, Maybe this song should be on another record, not this record. You know, um, I see you have your guitar there. Do you want yeah, to play Yeah, and the only cool thing about this <laughs> this song is that diminished chord. You know, which is a great <laughs> it's a great lead into you know a, a chord structure. It's it's a great way you know from a songwriting stamp, you know, point of view, it, it works. But where's that chord? Where's it going to? Uh, it's right before the, the chorus. Yeah, okay. it's, it's a very Elton John kind of, you know, approach to, you know, adding some drama to a verse and a pre-chorus and then going to the chorus. It, it adds some tension right. to what's going on. But at the same time, I, I really, I mean, well, this song is, yeah, this is probably the, the worst song on the record. It just doesn't work. There's something kind of demeaning about this song and the fact that Peter has to sing it. It's kind of like Paul goes to Peter, you know, hey, Pete, I wrote a song about uh, for you. He goes, great, what's it about? And it's like, well, it's pretty much about you apologizing for being such a giant fuck up. You know? <laughs> and it's like, oh, great. Yeah, that's really what I'd love to sing a song about, Paul. And, you know, apparently he sang it when Paul wasn't in the studio and Paul didn't like the way that he sang it. So then Paul made him go back into the studio and re-record all the vocals. And as Peter said, you know, there's no right way and wrong way to sing this song. There's Paul's way and Paul's way is the only way, you know? And I, I can see them like for some reason when I hear this song, I can see them in the studio, like doing multiple takes of every line and getting every line just so and to the point where like, yep, that's the best take of that line, move on to the next line and, and but it's a song that somehow is less than the sum of its individual parts like Peter sings each line fine. There's nothing wrong with his vocals. He does a good performance, but it just, it doesn't work overall somehow as a song. The only thing that I kind of like about it is that there's a little bit of a callback when he says, well, we'd share the secrets of our souls mm -hmm. to the song Psycho Circus, you know, when he says, reveal the secrets that you keep inside. Mm -hmm. So I like the fact that they're keeping a little bit of a thematic thing going there. But yeah, I agree with you. Um, they could have found a much better song for Peter. And, and think about yeah. this too. I mean, you know, Peter had no contribution songwriting wise to the song. It was Paul and, and Bob Ezrin. Yeah. You know, which again, Bob Ezrin wasn't really a producer on this record, but he was you know, considered early on. You know, Peter's involvement was just like showing up and, and doing a vocal take, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I personally too, I think, you know, if you compare this to songs on 70, uh, the 78 Peter Chris Hill album, there are lots of songs in that record that are way better than this one. You know? 
I don't know if you're gonna if you're gonna do a reunion album and like you know give the guys enough rope to either swing or hang you know and bring them in and <laughs> let them do what they're gonna do you know don't try to force the agenda you know yeah because what do you what do you, what do you end up with at the end of the day like you've got a record with you know that seems disjointed in a way yeah um, and and you know whatever the lyrics to Six Gun Sharpshooter were could they have been worse than what they ultimately ended up with I mean hard to imagine actually. Yeah. Yeah. And again, too, you know, with songs like that, you know, go back to the A song, you know, it's funny, like other than Psycho Circus, of the songs that they, they played from this album on that tour, in my personal opinion, none of them really came across that in, in, in a great way live, you know, it was weird. Yeah. yeah These yeah. are the masters of arena rock and this is what they write. And then when you hear it live, it just seems so just, it just didn't work. Okay. Moving on. Dreaming. Uh, I got nothing. No, <laughs> I don't have anything to say nice about it or even bad about it. It's just fine. It's it's the quintessential filler. It's the song right before the last song on the album, so it's usually the throwaway song. Um, no, the, I, I I I couldn't think of anything to say about it at all. Like nothing. There wasn't even a moment where I was like, I, I listened to it a couple of times to try and come up with something like musical to say about it, but no, nothing really stood out to me. Can I jump really? in? Can I just jump in and say yeah. that I want I want John Carson to produce the next record that I record because he's he's got a <laughs> perspective on the format. Like, okay, you know, don't give me the the bullshit, you know, second to the last song on, on the record, you know, thing. Give me something better. You know, I, I appreciate. You guys have, I mean, there's there's you guys are in bands. There's there's all sorts of books on this kind of stuff. There's guys that yeah. you know, if you put in a trash can ending at the end of the song, people will clap for it, even if they don't <laughs> like the song. Because if you put that, you know, everybody's going to be like, woo, you know what I mean? Like, it's a psychological fact. They're all Pavlov's song. I will produce your next album. I'll make hey, cool. it great. All right. We'll bring you in, man. Appreciate it. All right. <laughs> Dave? Hate this song. Really? I absolutely disdain this song. Wow. And, and the so interesting. Is, okay. I'm, I'm a huge Ellis Cooper fanatic. <laughs> So, and that's why, because as soon as I heard it, I'm like, oh my God, what is this pack? Mm -hmm. This is a complete, it's, it's totally contrived. You know, this is a complete ripoff. Now, if you wanted Alice on your album, just call him. Yeah. I'm sure he would have made time for you to be on your record, but this was just plagiarism, man. I mean, listen, I'm a musician. I'm a, like you guys, I'm a trained musician, right? I know there's only so many dang chord progressions. Let's, um, let's be real, mm -hmm. but just something about this that just came off as a complete and utter rip of Alice Cooper. And, and knowing now that they had other songs that were in the can that they could have gone with, this would have been the last song they should have, this and the last one should have never found their way in, into the final 10 songs of, of Psycho Circus. Yeah. And that's all I'm, that's my sad, I just choked myself in the morning to be in a bad mood. <laughs> 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 okay, for anybody listening that doesn't know, um, Alice Cooper's lawyers <laughs> sued over the fact that the song features the same chord progression as the Alice Cooper song 18. Uh, and it was settled out of court, which interestingly enough, 
I think it was settled out of court because they didn't want to spend the amount of money it would have taken to fought it. I, I fight it. I think they actually would have won if they had fought it because you can't copyright a chord progression. You can only copyright a melody. Now, that's right. somewhat not true these days with rock being defined by riffs and stuff. You could probably sue over a riff if you argued it was the defining characteristic of the song. But still, had they chosen to fight this, they probably would have won. It was probably cheaper to sell it out of court. Mike, your thoughts about this song? Um, a question though, on, on the chord structure thing, because uh, Spirit recently um, sued Led Zeppelin over the chord structure of the Stairway to Heaven, right? Yes. And they didn't win. They did, they did not. not. So no. you know, there, there goes that. But uh, at the same time, yeah, it just, it just seemed like, you know, it, again, we, we talked about this before. Kiss is great at being kissed when they don't try to sound like somebody else when they try to sound like somebody else they sound like somebody else and it, it just really it, it doesn't really serve them well you know and also too you know in terms of the the the, the lyric and the, and the chorus like we all dream what are you dreaming about paul what where, where are you going with this you know I, I, you tell me dave i'm sure you've got some you know, theory on what he's dreaming about you know Okay, I, I can clearly see that I will be the lone defender of this song. Okay, that's fine. I will stand alone and, and, and say why I think this song is actually a breath of fresh air. And probably, uh, I think it's a hidden gem. It's one of my favorite songs on the hmm. album. Um, because it's the one song that I think they're not trying to tie into this sort of nebulous concept about hmm. the reunion and all this. It's actually a song about a relationship you know, um, and I think it goes to some interesting places. I mean, obviously he's singing about a stagnant relationship and the line, I want to know, does a, does a frozen river flow? Mm -hmm. Now that's the, that's the, the Zen Cohen, you know, existentialist philosopher, Paul saying, is the relationship really dead? Is the water still moving under the ice? You know, does it still have life within it? That's an interesting lyric. Mm -hmm. Um, there's a fine line between the truth and how we want it to be, you know, very true. We want this album to be a reunion album of the original mm -hmm. members, and it's clearly largely not. But, you know, that sort of self-delusion is is a weakness, a, a weakness that tragically makes the hero of this song blind. Right. Mm -hmm. But at some level, he realizes that he's blind. Um, I like the, the lyrics. I'm sailing like a ship of, on the sea. I don't care if I'm lost in the haze. I hear the angels singing softly to me. Well, if you're on a ship in the sea, lost in haze, and you hear female voices, those aren't angels. Those are harpies calling you to your doom. Yeah. And it's kind of subtle that he alludes to that, but he's so delusional, he thinks that the harpies are angels. That's interesting, right? That's kind of a subtle thing. Um, then when he says, time's the enemy that you never see, that's an interesting line. I mean, in some ways, this is right about the time that Kiss are rebels in the sense that they are rebelling against time itself mm -hmm. because they are expected to look and perform like they did when they were all in their 20s. And they're, you know, haven't been in their 20s for quite some time. <laughs> so um, I don't know. I like the song. I, I can see I'm a minority of one and I'll, I'll take it. Can I, can I interject too? I think Dave, I'll agree with you for sure on the bridge. The bridge is probably the strongest part of the song. 
Um, you know, th those lyrics are definitely great. Um, you know, there's, you know, having, you know, my dad was in the Coast Guard and he used to tell me like stories about if you, the last place you want to be is on a ship or, you know, a Coast Guard ship you know, in, in the fog and the haze and, and wonder where you're going, you know, when you're in a hammock that's, you know, swinging back and forth, you know, so, yeah, you don't want to be there. Um, but I, again, I've mentioned before, I think they were trying too hard with this record and, you know, that goes over the heads of, you know, the common Kiss fan, you know, not to discredit, you know, Johnny Average Kiss fan, but like they want to hear Rock and Roll Night or Shout Out Loud or, you know, get up, everybody's going to move their feet, get down, you know, that, that kind of stuff, you know, you can kind of sing over the heads of, of, your, of your fan base. And I think it's good to strive in a, an artistic way and try to do that. But at the same time, does that translate into something that will work in, in a live presentation? No. Therefore, it becomes an album track, you know, and if you satisfy yourself in that way, then good for you. But to the rest of the, you know, the universe, it, it doesn't really communicate, you know, unfortunately. Yeah. Other than, yeah. you know, to people like, you know, us. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. right, right. But great points, though, period. All right. Final track on the album. I mean, I guess we can talk about the bonus track, too, but um, Journey of a Thousand Years. I, I like it. I like that it harkens. I mean, it's again, it's Gene reflecting on his uh, history with Kiss. It's, you know, it's a fine song. It is a little awkward musically. I there's I almost sort of want it to rock harder or be more of a ballad. It's just very weird musically to me. And I can't really put my finger on it. Um, but uh, I like the lyrics. I like how he's sort of reflecting on being a, you know, a member of Kiss uh, and the trials and tribulations, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so yeah, I, I like it. It's a good closer. Dave. Yeah, I like it. Taunting. It reminds me a little bit of a uh, of a nod again to Destroyer with uh, Gene's Great Expectations in some way. I could see that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. not a one to one, you know, but I I, I could definitely see, you know, some kind of relationship between those those two records and, and some of these these songs and this being one of them i've always liked it i think it's a, i think it's one of gene's finer songs um it's it's probably in my top 20 30 gene songs okay so i can't give it a higher compliment than that yeah no Mike? Yeah, Dave, you'll probably get more to the, the lyrical content, but I think in terms of a Gene song, or just a, a song on this record in general, I think it's one of the strongest songs on the record. It, it's haunting. It almost sounds like it could be something that could have been on The Elder, for sure. Yeah. It's got those, again, those diminished, you know, ascending chords that I mentioned before in, in previous songs, which draw, you know, a lot of attention and drama to the song, which is great. Um, there's also some vocal moments, too, where Gene sounds like he could have been singing on Unmasked or, or Creatures, you know, mm. and here it is you yeah. know, eight, eight years later, and he's still sounding that way. That is that is a sound that is signature to Gene. Like, nobody sings like that guy, in a way. Yeah. Uh, but then also on a personal note, you know, Dave, you and I have worked with Kevin on some Dave Fortune stuff, and we've utilized some of these sort of rolling tom kind of stuff, you know, in outros of our songs, and particularly Who You Lately, it, it's beautiful. You know, it, it's, a, it's a testament to how if you bring in the right players on a record and they're working together, you can present a song that comes across in a certain way as a genuine product, you know, not the product in terms of, you know, band-aids or, you know, toilet paper as, as something that really sounds like a, a song as, as a, as a unit, as a whole. And I think this comes across that way that to me, you know, if you crank this song up in your car and you're driving, you know, just on a, on a road and you're, you can kind of get lost in it. I love that. 
You know, it, it, yeah. it'll bring a tear to your eye in a way because all the elements of, of a classic his song are kind of there. But a classic in the sense that, like David mentioned about, you know, Great Expectations, those are moments. Those are great moments on classic his records that don't always appear. And here we've got one. Just mm. like that. And to mm -hmm. me, the, this song strikes a chord with me. I, I love it. I just love that, you know, it, it presents itself and it speaks to me in, in, in a great way. And it's, if you just blast the thing in your car, I mean, you, just, you're in, you can just get lost and you forget the fact you've been driving. It, it's wonderful. I, I love it. It's that other side of Gene's personality in his writing that I really like. Yeah, yeah, because you think of... You know, it's not the whips and chains and the S&M and the girl and, and screwing the girl or waiting around for the girl after school and all those <laughs> other things that Gene can write in logs and fireplaces. This is, this is, you know, this is, a, this is a part of Gene's songwriting and personality that I really, really am attracted to. Yeah, and then... And I wish he would do more of. And add in the fact that they, 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 they drawing the theme like you get the you know the, the breakdown of the guitar solo in, in psycho circus like this is the bookend of the record <laughs> yeah it references musically references the the solo in psycho circus uh, with with the um strings and then obviously also references lyrically within yeah yeah it, 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 to me this is one of the strongest moments on the record yeah no, I agree with you guys. I really, I really like it. Um, I, I think uh, whenever you're talking about you have a Jewish man singing about a journey of a thousand years, um, you know, you have to remember that, you know, the Jewish tribe was essentially lost in the desert for, you know, roughly thousands of years too, yeah. according to the Bible and stuff. So I think that's, you know, um, it's funny you mentioned the the elder Mike. I do think there's that this is kind of very elderesque. And in fact, you know, he mentions. Uh, you know, I know who you are, where you've been. Mm -hmm. It's time you opened up the door. Well, the last time Kiss talked about a door, it was about having a dream about an ancient door and going inside that door. Mm -hmm. So in a way, it's kind of a callback to that. It's like, now it's time to come out of that door. Now you you are, you were children when you first discovered Kiss and now you are, are, are men, right? Yeah. And, you know, I, I like the... Um, I mean, it's a little vague, but the whole idea of can you feel it coming? Can you hear the sound? Or is it the roar of the crowd? I, I think what Gene is talking about is, you know, Joseph Campbell says we're not looking for the, the meaning of life so much as we are the experience of being truly alive, right? And that's, you know, when you're at a concert like that, you know, when you're seeing your favorite band and you're lost in rapture in that moment, that transcendent moment of bliss, of connecting to other people, that profound ecstasy of feeling absolute freedom and being truly alive. And I think that is the best of what music is capable of. And I think, you know, it's that feeling that you get in that moment that anything is possible that is pure magic and that kiss is capable of and that they tap into with this song it, can i say big time and reinforcement for that as well because you can take me to any other show you know it, it, you could be all of my favorite bands and i'll be sitting there with my arms crossed going all right they're doing okay this sounds good you know they, they nailed that solo and da, 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 da. But when it comes to a kiss concert or an ace Frehley show or a paul stanley solo show i lose my shit i'm like yeah. yeah that's it you know i'm back to eight-year-old mike going to see kiss in 1979 in pittsburgh like that they have that magical power i don't know what it is you know and good for them yeah. for having it but like you can take me to any other show i'm sitting there going okay can i get some nachos and a beer or pepsi or whatever and i'm concerned about other things when it comes to kiss you know i, I just i i could i could move mountains 
want to hear those songs live. You know why, right? Because they keep the talisman with them <laughs> everywhere they go. That's true, right? Yeah, and they're holding those things, man. They're not letting those out. So. <laughs> but you guys get the point. There's a magic when it comes to kids performing those songs, man. It's they write unique songs and they present them in a way that you know just like makes you want to get up and, and be involved. And yeah. again, this is one of those songs that you know they probably should have performed live in a way. You know, just you know try it. I don't know. There's so many missed moments too with, with Kiss songs that, you know, that don't really get the, the, the attention that they need. <laughs> this would have been great on Symphony. Yeah, for sure. Good point. Good point. Sure. Yeah. Um, so before we talk quickly about the, the subsequent tour, I guess we should mention there is an extra bonus track that uh, Gene wrote for Ace called In Your Face that ended up on like the Japanese release and things like that. It's a little generic to me. You know, um, I like the fact that obviously Ace is on it, you know, and, uh, you know, maybe, I don't know if, if Peter played on that. I'm not sure to listen to it again, but, you know, anything with Ace's voice makes me, makes me smile, yeah. Yeah. but it's not one of their stronger tracks. And I, I know why it's, it was a, um, you know, a B-side basically to, you know, a single. Mm, yeah. Mike, your thoughts? It, it wasn't as strong as, you know, what they did with um, Into the Void in my opinion, I'll, I'll leave it at that, you know. Okay. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I hear what you guys are saying. It's not the strongest song in the world, but I, there's something about it that, that I kind of like, I, I like the, there's the line, I won't give in cause that's the original sin that I think is a kind of, is a cool line. It is you a know, cool if the rest of the song was on that level, uh, maybe it would have been on the album. So Mike, you and I saw this, the opening night at Dodger stadium. I was there too. Right? Okay, we were all there. Oh wow! So this will be interesting. Uh, our our impressions of this. Um, you know, to me, my memory of the show is kind of like when you watch the Walking Dead TV show, and like every other commercial is for something related to the walking dead it's like the video game the after show the you know like toast the coasters like i mean you realize that this is this huge phenomenon right and that it's incredibly popular and i think that's what they were hoping and expecting kiss psycho circus to turn into right so they they did a press conference i was at at uh, man's chinese where they played the entire album and the whole band was there um and then they did this stadium show, which was amazing to be at because it was literally in town, anywhere you went, it felt like everybody was talking about this show that was going to, going to happen. You just heard Kiss on the lips of strangers. And they had a whole thing worked out where it was like there was a comic book called Kiss Psycho Circus that was written by Brian Holgram. That's probably the best written Kiss comic to date. And they had a new series of action figures that not only included Kiss, but included their alter egos that were circus members from the comic book. And they had a circus that opened up for Kiss in which the people in the circus were dressed up as the alter egos from the comic book. It all tied in. And it was a 3D concert. You got 3D glasses, right? Yeah, yeah, me too. And they had like LA Weekly had a 3D ad that had separate like, you know, red and green 3D classes and stuff. Um, it was Halloween night. Yeah. And 
so so it, so what was your impression of the show yeah the first show i saw of, of any kiss show was august 20th 1976 anaheim stadium yeah and you know for me this was kind of a, another on this kiss journey along the way just like the reunion tour you know going to see him at the la forum again as i had had almost 20 years prior and so this is kind of like walking back into a a, a, a time machine for me. You know, I had, a, a, again, that joy driving in from Las Vegas with my, my childhood buddy, getting down there to the, the venue, just hanging around outside, this, the, the kind of the sense, the buzz, the excitement. But, but I was already hearing people that were there talking about it wasn't, you know, Kiss on that record. Uh-huh. There was always already that mumbling that was going on there. You know, so you're kind of already picking up on that energy a little bit. But, but once inside... It just brought that back to me in a, in a very real and powerful way that it brought me in that connection again to that kid that I was the very first time I got to see them in the flesh, you know, and, and the destroyer, the, the destroyer tour, you know, and I thought, hey, well, what I'm blessed again. You know, I got to see the destroyer tour in 1976, Anaheim Stadium, which ended up being, a, you know, one of the milestone Kiss performances in their history. And I felt like I was there again. Like, wow, what a great privilege this is. But I'm still a fan and I'm in this time and I'm in this place. This is, again, kind of vindication to see them, you know, in a stadium this size and, and drawing this crowd and, you know, all the entrapments that you talked about with the with the the circus performers and the 3D elements and, and all that. I think I even saw Alanis Morissette walking around there with her band at one point. Okay. And, you know, it was kind of, it was really super, super cool to me to, to, to be there at that point in time. And I thought the show was fantastic, by the way. I think so. You know, but again, I was, I was, you know, I was mesmerized by it, by the whole thing. You know, the tie back to 1976, the the feeling of vindication of the Kiss fan again to go, look, you know, I, I, I don't know if I ever told you guys this or not, but my stepfather hated them. Mm. And he gave me this speech that I'll never forget. And it was, David, he goes, good bands last five years. Great bands, great artists last 10 those are legends. Your band ain't going to last two. <laughs> right? So, you know, standing in Dodger Stadium in, in, on, on Halloween night, 1998, all those years later, don't think I wasn't kicking back over the years thinking, yeah, yeah. were you wrong? You <laughs> right, know? Right, right. And uh, here we are in this place with this amount of people was just an amazing rush for me. And uh, it, it's, a, it's a highlight for me. Yeah. I should mention too, just thinking about it, it comes back to me. So they, they were giving away a Kiss sports car. Um, right. I think I don't know. Did, have they announced the kit first Kiss cruise yet? I guess not yet. That was still to come. But there was something else that they were like playing ads for. I think there, you know, there was like a Kiss hotline you could call in between yeah. or something. Um, they had made some deal with Fox. So that night, Kiss was on Mad TV. Kiss was in Millennium, where they were mm. acting. They played like the first three songs from the concert online, yeah. live on Fox. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I, I was going to say, and it was funny too, because Paul was trying out this new type of guitar that had a different tuning system. Buzz which, Feetin. Yeah, 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 which was right. short-lived because the problem is when you have a one guitar that has a different tuning system, it sounds out of tune with all the other guitars that don't have that tuning system. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that 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 was didn't work too well. But nonetheless, it was all part of the excitement. So Mike, your thoughts. Yeah, there was definitely a buzz you know that night. I remember, you know, coming to your place because I, I traveled out here from uh, Pennsylvania and I, you know, remember being in your apartment putting on the you know the makeup. I, you know, obviously I've been in Kiss Tribute bands. I dressed up as Ace Frehley for that night and I wore the you know the big boots and it was a real pain in the ass to walk around in those boots all night, but I had a good time. Um but yeah but there's a difference. You know, having seen Kiss now in two stadiums, Tiger Stadium and Dodger Stadium, there's a difference between seeing Kiss in an in indoor venue and outdoor venues, and outdoor venues of that you know, massive size. And they work well in an outdoor venue too, of that, of that magnitude. I don't know how they do it, but they just, they just sound huge. I mean, think about it too, in terms of you know, pedigree. I mean, how many bands really have played Dodger Stadium? It's not like a major you know, go-to point for bands to play. Like you know, Elton John's played there, Paul McCartney, you know, the police, you know, whatever, and KISS, you know, it's not like a, a go-to venue, but, you know, they delivered it. it was an, there was definitely an excitement. There was a buzz. And you could just tell from all the people that were there, was there you know, it was excited about it. And then, you know, I think uh, Smashing Pumpkins were the opening group, right? Yeah. And I don't remember that. Yeah, they didn't really, they came out dressed as a Beatles or something. It just didn't, wasn't working. You know, it was like, can we get to the the meat of the, of the, of the nut here? Can we get, you know, when KISS came out, they showed how to deliver you know and it was the four guys playing again you know and supporting this new record and it it worked you know it sounded great and i remember it also i think this is one of the shows too where i i want to say that gene was uh, when he went to the uh, the top of the lightning rig to sing god of thunder and he was expecting a spotlight uh -huh. right and there was no spotlight and i remember hmm. clearly gene simmons saying give me a fucking spotlight asshole or something like that. You know? <laughs> you know, so they're not above like, okay, you know, you're missing your cue. Give me my thing that I'm paying you, you know, uh, you know, union wage for, you know, you're supposed to be doing your job, but, right. you know, but right, at the right. same time too, like there's that larger than life quality of the show, but there's also that human moment where Gene's like, you're not doing your job <laughs> and I'm paying you. So therefore do it. You know? <laughs> yeah. But yeah. you know, I mean, for God's sake, this is their hometown. You know, if you want to call it, you know, these days and, uh, there was even a story too, where I guess um, was it after the show that they couldn't get out. Yes, they, after the show, they got stuck in Halloween traffic in Los Angeles. It's notoriously horrible, <laughs> and you can just like be stuck in traffic for hours, not going anywhere. Yeah. They got within a few blocks of their hotel. They all got out of the limo in full costume and makeup and walked down the street to get there and people thought oh it's some guys dressed up as kids yeah unrecognized right yeah which all yeah. the more reason for them building this uh you know yeah this trolley system where they're going to build from dodger stadium to you know to get to the parking lot in which to keep you know promoting which may or may right happen, right right, right. Yeah. So I, you know, I thought it was a fantastic show, but I, I remember reading like shortly thereafter that they dropped the whole opening circus thing right after that night, just because oh. the tour wasn't selling that well and it was too expensive. And I, I remember thinking, wow, man, I'm, I'm so glad we got to see that because to me, it really tied in the whole theme of the show and it tied back to the comic book and the action figures and the fact that like, one audience out of the entire tour got to see that was kind of disappointing. Perhaps if they had actually made a real reunion album, they, they wouldn't have had this issue. Um, so yeah. final thoughts. 
I feel like we badmouthed this album and uh, it was a breath of fresh air for me um, listening to this album because I had, um, it was so much better than Carnival of Souls and I actually look forward to listening to it and critiquing it and that kind of stuff. Whereas uh, there's been a couple of albums, the last two, I think I feel like it's been a little bit of a chore to get through, so. Well, y'all hate dreaming like it owes you money, so I don't know what you're... <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, and that's it, but dreaming is the one song, you know, really take that out of the equation. I, I told you, I've said to you, Dave, you know, already that this is, you know, one of my favorite records, and it's, uh, you know, it, it was it was of its time, and, you know, when, yeah, it's, it, it's like anything else with Kiss, you know, you find out over the course of time that it was Anton playing drums on Dynasty and Unmasked, or anything else, it's like, all right, so you appear behind the the you know, Santa's beard, and you find out it's 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 something different than you wanted to believe that it was in that moment. But it doesn't take away from the magic of what you felt like as a kid when you first sat in his lap, right? right? right. So I I, was, I I still have a, a tremendous affection for this record um, through the, that lens of not knowing what really what the politics were going on behind behind the scenes. Yeah, and, and to that point, Dave, I'll, I'll say that you know. As a kid, I was probably what eight or nine years old when Dynasty came out. You know, I was just excited there was a new Kiss record coming out. And yes, Dynasty sounded way different than you know, Rock and Roll Over, but it still didn't diminish the fact that it was an ex exciting time to listen to that record and have a new Kiss record. Um, and granted, I was you know obviously a lot older when Psycho Circus came out. And I enjoyed it, uh, but looking back, I probably want to enjoy this record more than I did just because you know we're aware of the politics, and sometimes that can dilute your perspective. And I much sometimes. Sometimes you're better off not knowing about your, you know, the politics behind the band and what's going on. You just want to give me the record, I'll listen to it, and I'll, I'll give you know the evaluation that you know that that means something to me. Um, but it, you know, for God's sakes, I mean, what what could be better than you know the fact that the, the concept of our, you know, the, the original four members of that band recording together and touring behind that, um, yeah, that was a dream come true, and we experienced that. Mm -hmm. and, you, know, you know, thank goodness for that, because <laughs> you know we'll be lucky. We'll be lucky if we see that again. Yeah. No, I mean, I guess I, I have two minds on the album. I mean, just taken by itself, I think it's a, a good album. I enjoyed it when it came out, and I enjoy listening to it today, and I think it's got some great moments. Um, but, you know, purely through the lens of is it a great reunion album, I would have to say no because they – you know, it's barely a reunion. And so, you know, as much as I think it's a, a good solid album that I enjoy a lot, you know, it's somewhat tarnished by the fact that I think it could have been a potentially better album if it was a true reunion. I agree. On that note, I guess we'll be back next week taking a look at Sonic Boom.